Good morning, good morning, church. You guys can grab a seat. So good to see you this morning. Listen, have you ever heard this statement? Have you ever heard anyone say that relationships would be easy if it weren't for the people involved? You ever heard that? Relationships would be easy if it wasn't for the people involved. Man, does anybody feel that statement this morning? Maybe somebody, maybe, maybe your vehicle was the vehicle where you were yelling and screaming at each other and you pulled into the parking lot and you said, shut up and put your smile on, we're at church. Good morning, brother, how you doing? Oh, sister, how are you? It's so good to see you. Relationships would be easy if it wasn't for the people. Here's the deal, 100% of the joys and 100% of the pains in your life will come as a byproduct of the relationships that you have. Relationships are critical to us and to our experience. Here's the problem. Every single one of us is busted, jacked up, and broken. Do me a favor right now and turn to the person next to you and say, you are busted. Now turn to the other person, which you don't like nearly as much because you chose them second and say, you are jacked. And by jacked, I don't mean like jacked. I mean jacked up. Unless you're sitting next to Doug and then he is jacked. Love you, Doug. Love you, Doug. Here's the deal. Because we're all broken and jacked up and busted, when we get in relationships, a relationship means you get close to somebody and broken, jacked up, busted things cut, wound, and hurt other things when they get close to them. It's how relationships work, unfortunately. And so what Jesus is going to do today, he knows this all too well, so he's gonna spend this next portion of his kingdom manifesto establishing some of the most profound teachings ever when it comes to relationships. And it's so powerful and it's so profound that it transcends worldviews, it transcends religious systems. Matter of fact, many worldviews and many religious systems have taken a version of what Jesus is gonna teach us today and have put their own spin on it, but it's not quite as good as the original. We're gonna continue in our summer study series of the Kingdom Manifesto. And here's the deal, we are learning as we're studying Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, we're learning about Jesus's kingdom. We're learning about how it operates and we're learning about how we as people, if you are a follower of Jesus, how we should act and behave. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're getting a glimpse of, of what it is that Jesus wants for us as we follow him. And we're studying this because whether or not you want it or not, whether or not you know it or not, you're right in the middle of this epic clash between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the king himself, Jesus, is spending some time in his manifesto explaining to us how it all works. If you have your Bibles, turn there to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven is where we're gonna be today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jernigan. It's my privilege to be the pastor here uh, at Discover Church, and I'm so excited you to spend some time with us. If I've not met you yet, man, come meet me. I'll be out in the lobby. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. I wanna tell you, give you a little bit of an update about something real quick. Um, If you've been with us from the beginning of the year, you know that this year, 2021, is the year of the comeback for us here at Discover Church. And that's kind of the theme that we've been holding on to. It's been driving us uh, through the year. And what we've been learning is, and what we've talked about is, in a world where there's so much that we can't control, there are some things that we can control. 
And these three things have really been kind of the initiatives, the vision, the focus for us as a church this year. One is, 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 is unity, meaning we can't control a lot of things. We can't control how we love one another. We've done several things through the year. We've got more stuff coming that we're gonna do to try to cultivate a deeper sense of unity. So when we say that we're a place where strangers can become friends and friends can become family, that we can actually see that happen. The second thing that we talked about was um, in a world where there's a lot we can't control, we can't control how we love the world around us, all right? And we talked about that in the context of outreach, and we've done some things already this year with Love KC, and several of you are living this out day-to-day, week-to-week as you're serving others, and you use the kindness cards that, that we make available to you where you can take and bless somebody. You're just loving the world around you. And the third thing that we talked about is we can control how we love the next generation, We talked about how we're going to be looking to hire uh, someone to lead our student ministry to come alongside Brett and Amanda Miller, who are doing a phenomenal job with our students this summer. Um, Man, I've seen some pictures and some things that they're doing. As a former youth pastor, I'm like, man, I feel like I may have left too early. Um, Y'all having way kind, all kinds of fun. And, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to crash the party. I won't, I won't be that guy. Um, but we are uh, starting the process again uh, to try to hire a, a student position. And we also did something significant this last week uh, where we moved offices. Some of you may or may not know that um, this actually is not a church. This is a school. And uh, they don't really think too highly if we just come and kick them out of their offices through the week. Uh, and so we've had an office over by High V. Um, for the last two years. And uh, this last week, we just moved to a new location off of Ambassador, kind of over by Airworld Congress, Airworld, whatever, whatever. I don't know what that's called. I just know it's 10 minutes that way. Um, and so we moved, moved into a new space, got about 3,500 square feet for our staff to be able to gather and um, gather teams and training and hosting and that kind of things. But what I'm most excited about is the back part of it is the 3,500 square foot open warehouse space that we're going to be kind of retrofitting to be able to do student ministry and host some other things, prayer gatherings, some other things like that. So just want you to be in the know that your church is moving, um, that God is bringing these vision elements to fruition. It's not possible without you believing and trusting and buying into the vision. So as your pastors want to say thank you for walking this journey with us, and we've taken another step this week. Now here's the deal. Uh, I've titled the message today, Do That. Probably the most non-creative message title I've ever come up with. Do that. And you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do? And the answer obviously is that. And I'm going to explain what that is. We're going to start today. Jesus' message, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We're going to start at the end of this, and then we're going to work our way back through it. Jesus says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What an epic and profound truth. He's saying, listen, whatever it is that you want done to you, do to someone else. Perhaps you have heard of this. You don't even have to have been around church or know much about the Bible to have heard this idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we call it, we refer to it oftentimes as the golden rule. If you are the parent of multiple children, you have thought about getting it tattooed on your child's body, forehead backwards in reverse so they can read it every day when they look in the mirror. Do unto your brother as you would have them do unto you. You wanted them to punch you in the face. Now I understand why you punched him in the face. 
It's the golden rule that we're going to be diving into today. And what Jesus is teaching is that really this this thought right here, that whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, that really this sums up the entirety of the law and the prophets. He says, if you want to know about how the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is supposed to apply to your life, this is it. Do to other people what you want them to do to you. Now, a lot of times people uh, look at this and they go, okay, um, well, what, 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 what exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to back up, starting in verse 1, and we're going to unpack and we're going to see what this means. It says, he says this in verse 1, judge not that you not be judged. This is another famous verse that you don't even have to know anything about the Bible that a lot of people have, have heard of this. The reality of it is, is that we all have a little bit of a rebellious, autonomous streak in us. And so we don't like it when someone else tries to tell us what to do. That's the reason why don't none of y'all drive the speed limit. I get asked the question all the time, where are you speeding? No, it's going nine over. Be honest in the house of the Lord today. Somehow, nine over is not speeding. Ten over is, but nine over is not. But because we're a little bit rebellious, we like to try to do our own things. And none of us like it when somebody tries to tell us what to do. Can I just tell you something that universally nobody in America, there's a lot of division in the country right now. Can we agree? Can I tell you something? If I was to take a poll, I guarantee I would bet my house that the overwhelming majority of Americans, no matter who they vote for, would agree nobody likes judgy Christians. Nobody. The people who go to church on Sunday talk about Jesus, carry their Bible around, have a Jesus fish sticker on the back of their car and only listen to Caleb. Constantly walking around going, Jesus wouldn't like that. Mm -mm, I can't believe you did that. Mm -mm. Nobody likes that person. Doesn't matter if you're in church or out of church, nobody likes that person. And so what happens is because we, if you are a follower of Jesus, we have a tendency at times to get super judgy about things. People will begin to throw this verse back at us and say, well, judge not lest you be judged. And what happens is, is the application of this verse oftentimes gets misappropriated because what is intended when people often quote this verse means uh, is that they believe that Jesus meant that you should never judge anybody in any situation always. More recently, there's been a statement that's popped up kind of in culture, only God can judge me. And that's true. He will judge you. But what Jesus meant by this verse was not that nobody should ever judge ever. He's going to provide some context and he's going to help us understand that the point that he's trying to make is that it's important that we understand how to judge, when to judge, and by what standard to judge by. Notice he's going to bring some clarity. Verse two, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So what he's saying is, is basically that whatever standard that you use to, um, to judge people, whatever it is that causes you to look at people and go, oh man, all right, I see what they're doing, good for you. Bless the Lord. Or the things that causes you somewhere inside of you go, they are not a good Christian. A good Christian would not do that. He's saying whatever standard you use, it's gonna get flipped back to you and used on you. And here's the problem. Most of the time, our human nature chooses to use a moving scale of judgment that benefits me, myself, and I and so we move the scales whenever is necessary so that the scales tip in our favor. Oftentimes, it happens when we judge someone else for doing something, when we then go and do the exact same thing. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to be careful about the standard that you use when you judge other people. And instead, what we need to do is we need to, to realize that we need to have a higher standard. We need to have something else that we measure by than just our emotions and our feelings in a moment. And what he's doing is, is as he's saying this, he's, he's kind of giving the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, a little bit of a side eye as he's looking at them. Because this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders would do. They would constantly identify and make up new rules with which to judge other people by, but then they would hold themselves to a different standard. Ultimately, what Jesus is trying to get across is that when it comes to how we connect and relate to other people, we have two options. You can either focus on being right or you can focus on getting it right. What's the difference? Well, when you focus on um, being right, you focus on the issue, the argument, the debate. I will do whatever is necessary in order to be right in this moment, in this situation. I will not be proven wrong. But when your focus is on getting it right, your focus is not the debate, it's not the issue, your focus is the person. Can I tell you, this is the problem, one of the root sources of so many of the conflicts in marriage and relationships. This is one of the root problems of so many of the issues when it comes to parent-child relationships. That we spend so much time trying to prove that we're right, that we are the standard and I'm right and you won't prove me wrong. That in an effort to try to be right, to get them to bow to your will, you go, fine, you are right. What happens is, is we lose the person. And what Jesus is trying to get across to us today is that he wants his kingdom people to be exponentially more focused on winning the person and not winning the issue. I just feel like I need to repeat that statement in light of the, 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 the polarization of everything that is going on in our country, that Jesus is declaring that his people, his citizens, his sons and daughters should be exponentially more concerned about winning the person than winning the issue. Focusing on winning the issue and not winning the person will oftentimes lead people to the pinnacle of hypocrisy. And it is the haughty, arrogant spirit that creates the arbitrary standards that fit your position in a moment, but then that same standard gets turned around on you and you don't like it. 
This is the ultimate root of the cancel culture. This is the thing that causes so many people in our country to be so frustrated by the current climate of the political landscape that we're in. And not even just the political landscape, but the people who we have elected to go and represent, we the people here. Because instead of rational, principle-based leadership, what we oftentimes see is hypocritically-based opportunistic rationalism and reactionism. Let me give you two examples. Let's turn back the page back to the Supreme Court nominee situation. It was just four years ago, five years ago, in 2016, that then-President Barack Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland to the open vacancy of the Supreme Court of the United States. Republicans controlled the Senate, and they refused an opportunity to have a hearing saying, we should not do this in an election year because the people are going to decide who's going to be president, and their president should then decide who the nominee should be. In that moment, Republicans felt like they were on the high ground and the Democrats were upset and angry. Fast forward four years to October of last year, within weeks of the election, the same Republicans who refused the vote for the Judge Merrick Garland pushed through a vote for now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And while they were pushing through this vote, they were saying, well, y'all, you know, y'all wanted to do this, that, and the other then. We're going to do it now. The, the tables have turned, and we're going to do what we want to do. Let's come to something that's a little bit more personal. The COVID vaccine. It was just nine or 10 months ago that many people who were pro-Trump people were touting and celebrating President Trump for Operation Warp Speed and this incredible vaccine. Oh my goodness, look at what has happened. This vaccine is amazing. Only President Trump. Go Trump, go Trump. And they were pushing this, this vaccine and how great this was while at the same time, Democrats of highly elected offices and people seeking highly elected offices were saying y'all should be skeptical of that vaccine. Fast forward to where we are today. Those same Democrats who said be skeptical of the vaccine are now advocating going door to door, encouraging people to get vaccinated, while many of the same Republicans who said Trump is great and the vaccine is awesome are now saying, listen, you need to question what's going on in there. The pinnacle of hypocrisy. The standard changes and we use the standard that fits us in a moment and it's hypocritical opportunism at its best. Jesus is saying that kingdom people should never be this way. Instead, this is what he's teaching us, that kingdom people should have a steady, consistent rationalism that is rooted in the tenets of God's word. It's not rooted in a situation. It's not rooted in how I feel about something. It's not rooted in, let me see where the wind is blowing. No, that the kingdom people should have a steady, consistent rationalism that is rooted in the immovable, unchanging, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God that does not change. 
that his word should be the anchor whereby we hold on to and that we stand on when it comes to making any judgment, any decision about anything personally, politically, morally, ethically, or professionally. Why? Because the same standard that you use will be used against you. This means that we need to be cautious when it, when it comes to judging. And to further address any confusion, I want you to notice what Jesus teaches next. He says, verse three, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Recognize what Jesus is saying in context. When he said in verse one, judge not lest you be judged, he did not say that so that Christians are not to judge other people because what he's saying now is, no, 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 you are to judge because, but you need to judge your own stuff first. Remove the plank from your own eye and then judge your brother or sister in Christ. He's not saying that you're never to judge, but he's saying that before you go through the process of judging, you better make sure, number one, that you have the right standard, and number two, you better look at yourself in the mirror of that standard and make sure that you are walking in accordance to that standard first. And then go to your brother or sister and help them remove and deal with the issue that is in their own eye. This word that is translated speck is not intended to be the word sawdust. It actually refers to a twig. So it's not like it's some microscopic, insignificant thing that is going on in their life, in their eye. But it is something that's substantial. But, but the plank that's in your eye is bigger of an issue than the twig that's in theirs. So deal with your stuff first. And we have to understand if Jesus is saying that we are to judge, or I'm sorry, um, um, so we need to understand that Jesus is his principle of his inside out kingdom, that everything starts in here and then works themselves out, applies to the situation of how we judge other people. It starts inside first and then it works its way out. And when we do it the other way around, we become like the hypocritical Pharisees that he was speaking of. Now, how do we do this? How are we supposed to go about the process of judging others? Because, because it's necessary for our own well-being. It's necessary for our spiritual growth. It's necessary for the purpose of preventing us from running down a train, a train track that is going to run off the edge of the cliff for us to have some people in our lives that are willing to judge us and go, hey, you are going the wrong way and it's going to lead to bad things. God's word says that as iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens the countenance of the other. We are supposed to, in the context of church, in the context of relationship, in the context of biblical community, we are supposed to, we need people in our lives that sometimes are gonna rub us in an abrasive way that we don't like for the purpose of saving us from something that is dangerous. So we are to judge one another. And if we're going to do this, there's some do's and don'ts that we need to understand. First, we need to understand that we need to know how we are supposed to judge. 
how we're supposed to judge, John, John chapter seven, verse 24 says this, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What he's saying is, is don't judge based off of what you look at and what your natural emotional response is. Judge based off of the righteous judgment of the righteous standard of God's word. That is the foundation that we should judge by. Not, well, I don't like this or I don't feel this. Can I just tell you, there are some things in God's word I don't like. There's some things in God's word I don't agree with. There's some things that I read in God's word that interrupt the flow of how I want to live my life. But when I read God's word, I'm reminded that I'm not God. That I didn't create me. And since I did not create me, it would be wise of me to reference the one who created me, who knows me intimately and has wired all of this together to make me, me. And he has given me some instructions on how to position myself to live the best life possible. And at times, usually oftentimes, It means that whatever it is that I naturally want to do, whatever it is that I naturally think to be right, whatever natural form of entertainment or whatever natural form of a place where I want to go or things that I want to do, whatever it is that comes natural to me at times, God tells me in his word is the wrong thing. So what do I do? Well, first we need to know what are we supposed to judge? We'll go through this quickly. The first thing that we need to know is that we are supposed to judge the teaching of God's word. First John chapter four, one says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What he's saying here is that you need to understand that just because somebody is holding a Bible as they talk to you does not mean that they are teaching the Bible as God intended for it to be taught. What that means is, is that anytime someone stands in front of you and proclaims to be teaching the things of God's word, you need to be looking at God's word and going, does that add up? Oh, that don't add up. I don't care how much I want to like what you're saying. If it's not from the word of God, it's not from the spirit of God, it's from the spirit of the pit of hell and the devil is an expert at God's word and twisting it to sound good and to sound right and to tickle our ears and lead us to bad places. We need to judge the teaching of God's word. At any point you feel like I teach something that is wrong, that is, that is against the word of God, you have all of the right and all of the authority to go look for yourself and say, hey, preacher man, I don't think that adds up. There might be some little things that we can agree to disagree on, but there are some essentials that we've got to agree on. The second thing that we're supposed to judge, and this is not going to be comfortable, we are supposed to judge other Christians' sin. We don't like that. You see, oftentimes we like the idea of church. We get to come, we get to sit in, the music is great and it sounds real pretty and, and, uh, and the preacher does okay and hopefully we get out on time and uh, lunch is gonna be good and we go on about our way and I don't think about it again until we come back on Sunday. But the life of a follower of Jesus that Jesus describes is a life that is in the process of becoming more like him. 
And because of that, we need Christians in our lives that are going to tell us when we're off base and when we're wrong. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. How can you know if somebody who is a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ fits this category if you are not judging the fruit of their life? Doesn't mean that you go around pointing your finger in their chest every single time that they mess up. That's not what the point of this is. But that you observe and you're aware of the things that they're doing, the people that are close to you. By the way, the amount of concern you should have for the person you should be judging should be predicated by the depth of the relationship that you already have with that person. So don't go up to somebody across the room who you saw in church a couple of times and you saw them posted something on Facebook and you go up to them and go, I got to talk to you. You got issues. This ain't right. Quit that. Don't focus on being right. Focus on getting it right with the person first. What does that look like? It looks like saying, brother, sister, man, I love you. I care about you. Listen, I know I'm not perfect. I got issues. I got my own stuff and I know that. But can I just tell you, I've been, I've been kind of observing some things over the last season and I'm seeing some things that look really dangerous. Can I share with you some things that I'm concerned about? I've been praying for you. And can I share as lovingly as I know how The truth of God's word, because I believe that you are running down a lane that is violating God's truth and that will always lead to devastation and destruction. Here are some don'ts. Here are some things that we should not judge. We should not judge other people's salvation. That's not your job. Romans chapter 14, 10, 11, we learn about the judgment seat of Christ where every single person after they die, they're gonna go to the judgment seat of Christ and the question's gonna be really simple. What did you do with Jesus? Did you trust in him as savior, as Lord? Did you trust in his death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave as the source of your life? Have you become new, a new creation and born again because of Jesus? And if the answer to that is no, then you will not be permitted to go into God's heaven. Instead, you'll be detoured and rerouted to a destination of your own choosing. God doesn't send people to hell. We choose it. We choose it by rejecting Jesus. And so it's not our job to judge other people's salvation. That's God's job. Here's the other thing we're not to judge. We're not to judge non-believers' lifestyles. It's not our job to look at people who don't believe like us, who don't have a faith-based worldview, who don't have a biblically-based worldview. It's not our job to look at them and judge the way that they're living. Why should somebody who doesn't believe like us be held to a standard that is different than us? 
If they don't believe in God, why would they follow his standard? They won't. So instead of trying to be right, well, you shouldn't do that, why? I don't believe in your God. I can sleep with who I want to. I can smoke what I want to. I can go where I want to, say what I want to. And you know what? They are 100% correct. They can. It's not until we begin to meet Jesus and our life is transformed by Jesus that we begin to realize that Jesus has a different way for us. And it's only after salvation that God begins to hold us to those standards. So don't hold somebody to a standard that God doesn't even hold them to. Listen, it's hard to live this way. This is a hard tightrope to walk. Thankfully, Jesus gives us some encouragement. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Literally, he's saying, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep on continually, don't stop. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's saying, listen, this is a hard truth to live by. It's a hard truth to understand when am I to judge and when am I not to judge? When am I supposed to step in and when am I supposed to step back? When am I supposed to hold up the mirror and evaluate my own stuff? How do I know the difference between when someone is walking in truth and and not walking in truth? And when is it my role to step in and try to, listen, this is so hard to do. So what Jesus does is he, he says, listen, ask, seek, and knock. Just keep asking. Because what you're looking for, what you're, what you're seeking is wisdom. And God tells us in his word in James that anyone who lacks wisdom can ask God and God will give it with generosity and liberality. This year I decided to do something as a dad. I decided that I was gonna take, um, each month I was gonna take one of my kids and do some some one-on-one time doing something that they wanted to do, just me and them. And uh, something that I had been wanting to do for a while, and I kept, I'm gonna get around to it, get around to it, get around to it. Finally, I said, January 2021, I'm doing it. And so I I marked out my calendar, and January, I'm gonna take Micah. February, I'm gonna take Carson. March, I'm gonna take Gunner. So once a month, I've been doing this. Well, fast forward to June. June was a crazy month in our house because of vacation and then a work trip. I was gone about half of the month, and June was Carson's month. And what you have to know about Carson is Carson is the man who always wants to know if there's a plan. If you're a parent, do you have a child like that? I love it, I love it, I love it. I try to foster that in him and cultivate. God has wired him that way, but sometimes it drives me crazy. Son, relax, let it happen. He's like me. I always have to know what the plan is. And so we're getting ready to leave on our trip vacation. And he asked me that week, I bet 10 times, daddy, I always know he's going to ask me that question when he say, when he, when he enunciates daddy like that, daddy, when are we going to have our time together? What are we going to do? 
I said, buddy, I'm not sure yet. There's a lot going on, but I promise you we're going to make it happen. Okay. Well, I'm going to think about what we're going to do. I said, you do that. Daddy, what are we going to do? Over and over and over again. Can I tell you, I kind of got irritated with it. And at one point I said, son, I promise you, trust me, we're going to do this thing. I didn't respond out of anger or, or you know, uh, condemnation or punishment in any kind of way. Why? Because what he desires is a good thing. What he wants is to spend time with his dad. He's looking forward to that. What Jesus is saying here when he's referencing this is what, what good dads do. A good dad isn't when a son comes up to you and talks about something that they are, are in need of, sustenance, they're looking for bread, looking for something to eat. You're not gonna turn around and hand them a snake. By the way, the point of this was that not that he would hand him a snake that would bite him, but snakes were considered unclean. Jews couldn't eat snakes. And so you as a dad wouldn't turn around and hand him something that might fill his belly, but lead him in a wrong direction when it comes to God. In the same way that I wouldn't respond to my son who's wanting a good thing, I'm not gonna respond in anger and condemnation for him wanting to spend time with me, so too will your God in heaven, when you ask, when you seek, when you knock for wisdom, discernment, understanding, he's not gonna respond by giving you a serpent. He's not gonna respond by giving you a stone. He's not gonna respond in anger or how dare you, can't you see I'm busy? No. He will respond by saying, okay. But Jesus is saying, you have to be persistent. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And in the meantime, as you're waiting for wisdom on how to navigate this, if you're in a situation with somebody else in another relationship where it is particularly complicated, it's particularly difficult, you really don't know how to address it, how to respond, what to do, and you're asking and you're seeking and you're knocking, God, help me to see how to respond to this. Help me to see how to, how to come alongside of my spouse who is doing X, Y, or Z. Help me to see how to come alongside of my wayward child. Help me to see how to respond to my boss. Help me to see how to respond to one of my employees. Help me to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my neighbor. God, what am I supposed to do with my mom who keeps saying this and doing that? God, how am I supposed to navigate it? As you keep asking, as you keep knocking, and as you keep seeking, Jesus provides a Band-Aid that is a universal good place to start. And he says this, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In any situation, in any circumstance, with anyone, just ask yourself this one question. If the situation was reversed, what would I hope they would do to me? Once you picture it right now, a situation, a relational conflict, a relational difficulty that you're in right now. Ask yourself the situation, is it a boss? Is it an employee? Is it your spouse? Is it your kid? Is it your neighbor? If the situation were reversed, what would I hope they would do to me? And whatever it is that you answer, not 
Not how you think that they might respond when you do something or, or not what, what you think that you deserve or they deserve. What is it that you hope they would do? And however it is that you answer that question, do that. Would you want them to offer grace to you for whatever it is that you did? Then offer grace. Would I want them to help me because I'm going through some stuff? Then do that. If the situation were reversed, maybe what you would want for them to do is to offer forgiveness. Do that. Or perhaps you would want them to be the first to admit that they had done something wrong. Then do that. If you don't know what to do because it's a difficult situation and you see a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, maybe it's in a hospice care facility, maybe it's in a hospital room, Maybe it's on the other end of a phone. If the situation were reversed, would you want them to sit in silence with you as you process what just happened? Then do that. Would you want them to sit by you as you grieve? Hold your hand? Then do that. Would you want them to pray with you? do that. If the situation were reversed at work and they were your boss, or if the situation was reversed and you were their boss, would you want them to follow you well? Would you want them to bring answers and not problems? Would you want them to help lift the burden that you carry as the boss if the situation were reversed and you were the boss? What would you want them to do to you? Do that. If you knew that the decision that you were about to make had the potential to derail your entire life, destroy your home, destroy your family, sabotage the relationship with your children, if the situation were reversed and that was you standing on the edge of the cliff about to jump, do you want someone to confront you and say, please don't do this? There's so much at stake. Don't make that decision. Don't do that thing. Would you want them to confront you and to tell you that? Then do that. If the situation were reversed, what would I hope they would do to me? Then do that. Why is this important? It's important because we're all broken. We're all busted. 
and we're all jacked up. And it's inevitable. As I take my broken and jacked up and busted parts and I become to be close to somebody else who has their broken and busted and jacked up parts and we begin to be close to each other, it's inevitable that my stuff is going to cut, is going to hurt, is going to damage, is going to wound them and vice versa. And ultimately, the great hope that we have is not in our own ability to try to get it right. The great hope that we have is found only in Jesus, who is the only one being fully God and fully man who ever lived, who was born and got close in connection and relationships with other people. But because he was God, he was not broken. He was not busted. He was not jacked up. And he chose to come and be in relationship with us. And us as being human, the human condition as broken and jacked up and busted as we got close to him, we cut him and we wounded him. And instead of him retaliating or responding in anger or condemnation or vengeance or trying to get even or trying to get right, instead what Jesus did is what Isaiah told us that he would do that he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, the stripes that we placed upon him because of our sin and our brokenness and our issues, our stripes that wound and hurt and cut other people caused them to respond and reject and react and go away. Jesus stood solid and he said, I'll take it. I'll take it all. Because of his great love for you, because he wants to be close to you, because he wants to demonstrate to you what the hope of a relationship looks like. He said, I'll take all of it. It hurts, but you're worth it. You see, Jesus wasn't focused on being right, although he was. He was literally hell-bent on getting it right to win you. And through him that you might be healed, Through him, you might be able to learn how to connect and react and respond. When you get close in relationship to others, so that you could begin to learn how to walk out this truth, that if the situation reversed, what would you hope they would do for you? Do that. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.